Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome to Alphabet Soup. And again, thanks for your patience as I get back in the groove after an absence of what was almost two months, during which we moved from Oregon to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, actually a suburb of Phoenix, and uh, got uh, a good start. We're, we're a long way from done, but we got a good start on turning this house into a home. Lots of renovation work done, lots more still to go, but there's enough space in the day to return to alphabet soup and uh yeah it's taking me a little time to get back in the groove both of uh, both prep and recording so again thanks for your uh, patience g is for growth and obviously in this case we're talking about spiritual growth our reason for moving back to arizona is the family our two sons their wives and our grandchildren live here uh, Phoenix is huge. It's like 80 miles from the um, eastern edge to the western edge. Now, obviously, that includes suburbs. But because it's the desert, it is very spread out. Our sons and their families live in what's referred to as the West Valley. Uh, we live in the northwest, so we're about 30 minutes north of them. But here, that's nothing. Uh, it is so big. The city, including its suburbs, is so huge. It's desert, and so it's easier to go out than up. It's a very horizontal city. And we moved to be closer to them. Our oldest granddaughter is Megan, and she's a college junior uh, at ASU, um, Arizona State her younger brother, Caden, is a high school junior. He will be a, a senior in the fall. Uh, the two littles, that's what my wife refers to them, uh, the littles. Jason is, boy, I'm going to get this wrong, I think, 10. And uh, Emily is 8. We see them, not all the time, once or twice a week. We'll have pizza together tonight. That's kind of the normal Friday evening routine. We meet for pizza. We enjoy being with them, and because we were gone for eight years and didn't see them as much, we're struck by watching them mature. The older two, Caden and Megan, maturing in um, oh, personality and, you know, that non-physical way. Caden is huge, a high school junior. He just won a competition for his weight class and doing uh, weightlifting at, his, at the high school he attends. Megan is developing uh, professionally. She's doing her internship this summer. Um, she's good at, at her chosen field, which is, boy, I'm going to get this wrong too. I think it's commercial art, digital art. I don't know. Uh, commercial art. It, it's not uh, drawing pictures that people put up in their bedrooms. It's designing logos and promotional pieces and so forth. She's developing uh, professionally. And uh, having some success, the younger two, Emily and Jason, are changing. We were with them last Sunday after church for lunch. Pam was commenting how much Jason is turning into a boy, uh, a, a junior higher. I think he's 10. He might be 11. But his physical appearance 
is changing a lot. I was, as she said that, I was thinking it won't be long before his voice starts to crackle and he starts to to sound sound funny. And Emily is is just blossoming into a little girl, uh, not so little anymore. She's very very tall for her age, but but they're both growing and changing physically more than the other two. That is fun to watch. It's fun to watch uh, friends who have babies for the first time and watch those babies. Now, I do that mostly online. Uh, Marta and Tiago have had uh, a baby, their first after trying for a long time. And of course, then you get a lot of pictures on Facebook. They're obviously thrilled parents. And to watch how quickly they turn in from infants into little chi- children. Uh, that's fun to watch. Okay, I say all that because there is obviously a spiritual parallel, and it is mentioned throughout the New Testament. Many of the New Testament writers talk about spiritual maturity and growing up in that sense. Uh, that was the term for I don't know how long, spiritual maturity and growing up growing up in Christ. There wasn't a lot of attention paid to terms. I don't know if you're aware of it, but now the, the, the term du jour is formation. It's all about formation. And authors are now writing books about formation. What they mean is just growing in Christ and, and, and uh, spiritual maturity. It comes from Galatians 4, 18 and 19. Paul says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If you know Galatians, you know that it was a difficult letter for Paul to write, that the Galatian church was slipping back into legalism. They were at risk of leaving the gospel of the grace of God and turning back into a a salvation by works kind of theology. And so it's a letter where he sort of has to get on her case a little bit and urge them, don't abandon the faith. It is a faith salvation. It is not a works salvation. That's why he talks about the pain. And uh, when he's with them, it's easier. When he's away from them, it's more difficult to guard against bad theology And he is again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Contemporary authors have taken that last phrase and have begun to write books and hold conferences and so forth about Christian formation. I try hard not to be a curmudgeon, but sometimes it seems like, okay, we can come up with a new word, and put together the old thoughts in a new way and say them with different terminologies and sell more books. Um, Yeah, I'm not such a fan of doing that, including the current fascination with the concept of formation. It is just growing up in Christ. It is just a, uh, a biblical truth about spiritual maturity, about progressing in the faith, But then I remind myself, listen, call it whatever you want. If it gets some attention, that's probably a good thing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to work quickly through some New Testament passages that talk about the progress in the spiritual life 
from immaturity to maturity, how that happens. And then the plan at least is, although like I said, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to get back in my rhythm. The plan is in the second part of this to talk about how that seems to be going. How is the evangelical church in America doing with Christian maturity? Hey, there's something else uh, just as an aside I hadn't thought about in this new setting. When we were in Oregon, we were out on our three acres in the woods, and one of the things I especially enjoyed about that was the quiet. Not so quiet here. We live in a, in a subdivision. It happens to be an age-restricted. You have to be at least 55 to live here. But there are train tracks that run through this subdivision. We're not that far away. I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm hearing... Uh, the horn of a freight train as it passes through. It's probably two miles away, but we can still hear it. Don't know if you can or not. Won't worry about it. Okay, a biblical truth by any other name is the same truth. And so whether you call it a formation or spiritual maturity, it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about how that happens, why it happens. And then, like I said in part two, take a look at the status of the American Evangelical Church in this business of spiritual maturity. The beginning, John chapter 3, Christ is sitting with Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. You're undoubtedly familiar with that concept, that we, as we come into this world, are dead in Christ. What that means is we are separated from God and a relationship with him. We are, we are dead in Christ because of our sin that we are separated from him, our spirit is dead. And at, at our uh, conversion, we are born again. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, uh, understandably confused by that expression, says, what, can I enter into my mother's womb? And so Christ goes on to explain a little bit, although that is unpacked more by uh, New Testament writers. 2 Corinthians 5.17 if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There again, something that starts new, that born-again concept. It is, uh, it is a life that is completely new, completely different, and, and starts at a point in time. Do you know that point in your life? I don't in mine. I don't remember a time when I didn't believe that Christ had died for, for my sins, paid the penalty that I should pay, and that that was the only basis for a relationship with God was, was because of what Christ had done for me. Uh, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe that, but there was known to God, if not to me, a point in time when I was born again. I was born physically. Sometime, some years after that, I was born spiritually, and uh, that's known to God, and that's what matters. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, walk in newness of life. See, there again, it is a new experience. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. That word new, uh, born again, implies it. It starts at a point in time, and it is a life, not a physical life, but a spiritual life. Think about first century Christians. My parents uh, were believers. They're both with the Lord now, but they were both believers. My mother was raised by believers. 
Um, I don't know that much about my great-grandparents on my mother's side. They were gone long before I was born. Same on my dad's side, but I know that my grandmother, my dad's mother, and her mother were believers for years and years. My dad was raised in a um, Christian home in that sense. His dad, however, was not saved until my dad was uh, a young adult and married. The story of my granddad's conversion is, is it just touches my heart. So my dad was raised in a home where his mother was a believer. His grandmother was a believer. She lived with him for the last few years. And his dad, my granddad, was not until relatively late in his life. As I recall the story, he was well into his 60s before uh, he was saved, before he was born again. Um, But think about the first century Christians. There were no children of believers. There were no grandchildren of believers. Everybody who uh, was born again was a uh, first-generation Christian. Uh, that, 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 when you think about the implications of that, that created some interesting situations. For example, many of them were then um, born again but married to an unbeliever because their spouse did not join them in the conversion experience. That created some interesting situations. And in fact, in the two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he deals with that. That's why he talks about the person who is married to an unbeliever, because in the first century, that was, uh, that was almost normative, I suppose. There were, I'm sure, situations in which both husband and wife came to Christ at the same time. But in, in many, perhaps most situations, that did not happen. And so spiritually mixed marriages, that's what we call them, were probably the rule, not an exception. What that also means is that these believers had no prior knowledge of what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a follower of Christ. They came out of paganism. And if you know anything about about the Roman um, system of gods, it was a hot mess. It was terrible. But that's what they lived in. They worshipped idols. Depending on where they lived, they worshipped idols uh, different of different types and of different sorts, and sometimes a male idol, sometimes a female idol. It was customary to offer food to the idols at, um, at each evening meal. Uh, they don't know anything about the Christian walk. They have to learn all of that. All of them then grow up in the faith, mature in the faith from a very anti-Christian environment to learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, uh, Fascinating. Wouldn't it be fun to go back and interview some of these and learn about about the transition that they made? For some, it was probably easy. And for some, well, you you read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you find out for some of them, it was filled with problems. They had to learn what things to leave behind and what things to begin and so in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, like newborn infants, you see here again is this uh, metaphorical language that describes the new life in Christ. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
Now, now don't think from that that salvation is something that you enter gradually. That's not what that terminology, especially in the Greek, means. It means you are saved, but now you will mature. And that will happen as you long for pure spiritual milk. And, and, and again, that's obvious, huh? The parallels he's using, the metaphor of the infant, the physical infant, who gets mother's milk and so grows and matures. That's the normal process. However, not everybody went through that normal process of maturation. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Hebrews, written by a different author. The book of Hebrews is technically anonymous. Um, The author doesn't give us his name, unlike, for example, Galatians, where Paul starts off by saying, hey, this is Paul, I'm writing to you so that. Um, Hebrews doesn't have that, an interesting discussion that maybe we'll have someday. But Hebrews was certainly not written by Peter, and I'm convinced not written by Paul, That'll get some of you upset. That's okay. Um, So here now we have three New Testament authors all using this same metaphor, the same way to describe spiritual maturity, that you you start out as an infant and that you need milk. And as you grow, as you mature in the faith, you move on to meat. The readers, however, of what we call the book of Hebrews had not gone through that normal progression. You ought to be teachers. I still have to give you milk. Because there is what we, what we might call a failure to thrive, huh? And that they, this is a rebuke, and it is their fault that they have not moved on. And he scolds them for that. This same thing happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says something very similar. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. That term means spiritually mature. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So the Corinthian readers had also not progressed as they should have from spiritual milk to meat. And as a result, Paul still has to give them milk. And he says the indication that you haven't matured is is the kind of sin that is clearly present in your assembly. There is jealousy. There is strife. And and as you read about it, this this was serious stuff. They were suing each other in the courts and so forth. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way as opposed to then a spiritually mature way? So what we've got is the beginning of the Christian life at the point of conversion is something brand new. It is a new life. And as with a physical new life, especially in the first century, 
They required the milk of the word, the most basic spiritual principles. What would those be? Who God is, who we are, and our condition as we come into this world. What uh, what conversion, what salvation involves, that it is not something we accomplish, it is something that God accomplished for us and that we receive by faith. These would have been the very basic principles, the milk of the word, the most essential. And Now, see, I don't remember a time when I didn't know those things. They came to me, I think, just because of the home in which I grew up, because of the church that we attended, I knew these things and was taught them regularly, faithfully, and clearly. I understood them, I think, long before the point at which I realized they applied to me very personally. These people did not have that because they weren't raised by parents who were believers. They didn't attend churches where they were taught these things. They were raised in Roman mythology, paganism, they came in awe. The first time they heard it was the first time they heard it. And, and that was at their conversion experience. They had to learn all of these things. And then they could move on to more complex truths. What it means to be part of the family of God. What our obligations are to each other. The kinds of behaviors that are appropriate and those that are completely inappropriate. And that at some point to continue in those behaviors is sin. At, at first, you get away with uh, ignorance is an excuse, but there comes a point in time when you learn what God wants and the obligation that you have to conform to what God wants. So we go from milk, the basic principles of a Christian life, and normally progress toward maturity, uh, an ability to understand, digest more complex truth, and then to obey the implications of that more complex truth. That failure to mature, both in the book of Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians, is the individual's failure. That, that the believer bears responsibility for their failure to thrive. We have friends who have two young boys, and the first has got some physical problems that they, for the life of them, the doctors can't figure out. He's, he seems in every way healthy, except he's not growing physically. His body is still very small, and they can't figure it out. It's not his fault. There's something going on, and eventually they'll find out what and address it. But when that happens in the Christian life, at least as we read in the New Testament, it is the individual believer's responsibility. And, and they are rebuked both in Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians for their failure to thrive, for their failure to move on to meat and spiritually, uh, spiritual maturity. Okay, now how does this happen? Uh, okay, I've, I'm sorry. I'm not, see, this is why I'm out of practice. I'm not managing my time well. We're a little, uh, we've used up most of our part one in terms of time, and we're not where I thought we would be. But I think what we're going to do to make this manageable is we're going to stop here and we're going to move on. It's going to work out. I, I think this will be okay. We're going to move on to how it is that we move from immaturity to maturity. Then we can look and examine how the American Evangelical Church is doing at that progression. So again, th thanks for your patience. We'll be back in part two and get back to it. Mm -hmm.